Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife. We originally scheduled this because it was going to come after the second presidential debate, so now we call it the debate that never was, or sort of never was, which I'll get to in a minute. I want to thank our partners at the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival and Jamie Cabler in particular, uh, and I want to introduce each of our guests. Uh, Ron Brownstein is a senior political analyst at CNN. Uh, he also serves as the Atlantic Media's editorial director for strategic partnerships, and he writes a weekly column for the Atlantic, as he does for CNN. For 23 years, which may be a record, uh, he had a column every week in the LA Times. Uh, Asma Khalid is a political correspondent for NPR, who co-hosts the NPR Politics podcast. She's covering the 2020 presidential campaign, and she also reported on 2014, 2016, and 2018. Uh, she focuses on the intersection of demographics and politics. We're going to talk about that today. And she was awarded the Missouri Honor Medal for her coverage in 2016. Doug Thornell is a partner at SKD Knickerbocker, one of the leading public affairs and consulting firms in the nation. He served as a media strategist for House, Senate, and gubernatorial campaigns and progressive and civil rights organizations. And he's been a lead media strategist for the Democratic National Committee and a top advisor for the Congressional Black Caucus. So I think I have to start off by just giving everybody a chance to say what they thought of the debate that never was, the town meetings last night. Uh, Ron? Yeah, I'll jump in. I think the overriding point about the, the, these dueling town meetings is that they are not likely to be consequential events in the trajectory of the campaign, certainly not nearly as consequential as a debate, even in a town hall format, would have been. And in that sense, it was an enormous self-inflicted wound by the president, who is behind, needs to shake up the race, uh, there's no guarantee that a town hall debate would have shaken up the race. I mean, traditionally, they've been probably the least uh, consequential in that way. But uh, certainly, he had a better chance of doing that if he was, you know, point to point with Joe Biden rather than in this weird, uh, you know, dueling uh, events at the same time. And uh, he just, you know, he's left himself in a position where he doesn't get a direct confrontation with Biden until October 22nd, by which time, Doug, how many people will have voted? 50 million? I mean, it's... It was just uh, it was just an inexplicable decision. And then, you know, in terms of the substance of it, I thought, you know, Biden was Biden, reassuring, windy, you know, got tangled at times, but seemed very decent and calm. Uh, Trump calmed down in the second half, but in the first half, he was extraordinarily belligerent, uh, condescending toward the uh, toward the you know the, the the woman who was questioning him, and that's not insignificant. I mean, he just he cannot abide being challenged by women, and 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 given that there were two polls out yesterday from two of our best pollsters, NPR Marist and um, NBC Wall Street Journal, that had that Biden at sixty percent, both of them among women. I don't think himself he did himself any favors. Doug. Yeah, and you know the town hall format is actually really good for Joe Biden. Um, I think that uh, you know he connects extremely well with people one on one. Um, I think you showed you saw that last you saw that last night. I think he did a, a good job 
sort of like the, you know, the first debate, I don't think Biden, Biden wasn't great, but he, he did what he needed to do. He didn't make any, un, he didn't make any unforced errors. Um, Trump obviously had a terrible first debate. I don't think anything that occurred last night is going to change the trajectory of this race. Uh, you, you know, Trump needs to have, first of all, the audience size of what uh, went on last night is going to be significantly lower than the first debate. And the first debate had a smaller audience viewership than previous debates as well. So um, I don't expect last night to have anything, uh, any impact on the horse race, on people's impressions of the candidates. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think it was, uh, look, the president needs to f figure out how he can create a, a pretty tight, you know, a, a pretty monumental shift in people's opinion of how he is handling the coronavirus. And he didn't do that last night. Asma, are you with us yet? Hi there. <laughs> Oh, you are? Okay, great. Hi, sorry about that. I was just finishing up another thing on deadline, but I am here now, yes. <laughs> question is a very simple one, sort of preliminary question that we're going to ask. What did you think of the town hall debates last night? Oh, gosh. Okay, so I will um, preface this by saying I was one of the pool reporters with Joe Biden yesterday. So I was in Philadelphia, which meant that uh, I was relying on my colleagues, you know, Twitter assessments and reassessments from what was happening with President Trump, but I only saw Joe Biden's. Um, you know, my colleague Tamara Keith was with, was with Donald Trump uh, in Florida, and we were, you know, confabbing and comparing notes this morning, and we were saying that, you know, both in style and tone, these were dramatically different events. While President Trump's focused a lot on controversial statements that he's made, Joe Biden's was dull, some might say in comparison. It was very uh, calm. It was a somewhat slow affair. To me, I was struck, though, by the fact that, you know, this was a town hall that took place in lieu of in lieu of a debate. And had Joe Biden actually been on the debate stage last night, he likely would have been interrupted, having to respond, you know, in one minute, two minute answers. And instead, he was able to give these like eight minute responses. Uh, he could speak at length. It, it's a format that he enjoys doing. Um, did it change anything really, though, in the race? I don't think it really substantially did. No news was made, but if you're Joe Biden, that's the position you want to be in. A no news night is a good night. Right. No, I think that's right. I mean, if you're Joe Biden, I'm, I'm not entirely sure why you would both risk your, you know, your campaign and your own physical health in terms of debating the president next time around. And we also know what, what is going to occur. We saw the first debate. The, you know, the president is simply not going to change in terms of how he conducts himself in a debate. I'm not sure you know, how that benefits Joe Biden at all, you know, he's going to go through with it. But I, I think at the end of the day, I think that um, that the president has to figure out how um, for that very small slice of voters, one or two percent that is still out there that's undecided, uh, maybe even, you know, how does he reassure them that he has a plan to contain the coronavirus and rebuild the economy so that it helps everyone? The coronavirus and the in you know, what I'm seeing in many of these swing states that he needs to do well in uh, is is uh, you know one of the top if if not the top concern of voters and Joe Do and Joe Biden dominates in terms of the the impressions of voters of who's the best person to handle it. Interestingly enough, though, Trump still has an advantage on the economy, even though the economy is worse now than it's you know been in years. People still sort of trust the president a little bit more on the economy, but that is not what the conversation that the president is having, you know, he's not talking about the, he's talking about, I mean, look at his Twitter feed. It's just all over the place. He, he is not, 
he's not been disciplined enough, Bob, in terms of, you know, having a mess, you know, he, he doesn't have any message discipline. You know, I mean, you go back to races, good races, good candidates. You look at 2004 Bush, you look at um, uh, Clinton in 92 and 96, you look at Obama in 08, you look at uh, even uh, to some degree, uh, Trump in 16. These campaigns were consistent with their message from start to finish. One thing that Biden, I don't think, gets enough credit for is he's had a very consistent message from start to finish. He hasn't changed it. Even under withering criticism from people on the left and, and pundits, he has been very consistent with his message. And I think at the end of the day, that's going to serve him extremely well. You just mentioned the, you know, the one or two or three or five percent who might be undecided. With Biden holding a pretty steady lead in our poll, the USC Dornsife poll, Daybreak poll, and a lead of 10.5 in the 538 polling averages. Do you see any path for Trump to an electoral college victory? And that's for each of you. I can speak to, I guess, I, I guess real quick, I'll give a, a nutshell response just based on, I've been to a lot of swing states recently, Wisconsin, Michigan, Florida. Um, I think that path is extremely narrow. It is plausible um, in part because the margins are tighter in some of the key battleground states than they are nationally. Um, but one thing I will say I am struck by is how, frankly, uncompetitive the race feels in a state like Michigan, which I just returned from. Um, you know, I spent some time speaking with disillusioned Democrats. These were young black and brown voters who did not participate in 2016. And, you know, to Doug's point earlier, th there is just a clear sense that the COVID crisis has affected many people personally. You know, I interviewed a young guy who lost his cousin to the virus. This is very personal for people in and around Detroit. Um, so, you know, that knocks off a state like Michigan, you know, I, I was in, um, you know, parts of Wisconsin earlier this summer too. It's just anecdotally, and we can take that for what it is, you know, people say it's anecdata, but interviews that I've done just really seem to suggest a far more favorable climate for Joe Biden than what I recall hearing in 2016 for Hillary Clinton. Look, I mean, I think the path, if there is a path for Trump, it's the same path that, that's always been there. Uh, and it is a very narrow path. I mean, he has governed from the start as the president of Red America. I mean, he's made no effort to kind of reach out uh, beyond his base. Uh, and he has lost part of that base, uh, as Osmo was saying, I think largely around the, the he lost part of it in 2018 uh, at the upper end around behavior. He lost a little sliver of it um, among blue collar women uh, around uh, trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and now uh, COVID is kind of squeezing him among seniors in, in particular. So, uh, you know, he's in a situation where I think by and large in the Rust Belt swing states, the three uh, bricks in the blue wall that uh, Trump dislodged in 2016, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, he's probably down seven to nine in all three of them. Uh, and he's probably down three to five in the, in the Sunbelt, the premier Sunbelt battlegrounds of North Carolina, Florida, uh, and Arizona. And Ohio and Georgia are, are not at all out of reach. And even Texas is going to be fascinating given the turnout uh, in the metro. So why do I still think, you know, is there a chance for Trump? Sure, the one chance for Trump is the chance that there has always been, which is that he mobilizes a vast turnout of non-college and non-urban white voters that vastly exceeds what any pollster uh, expects. The problem, and, and that, you know, a, a version of that is what happened in 2016. I mean, that's how he won Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin when the polls had him, had him losing. The problem he's got is that everybody is voting in big numbers this time. So it's harder to get a competitive turnout surge on your side if 
African-American turnout is going to be significantly higher. College white turnout will probably be the highest it has ever been, like, in modern times. I'm, I'm convinced that it's going to be astonishing. I mean, you, you probably saw the, the figure where the, 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 the county clerk in Travis County in Austin said they expected 650,000 people to vote before election day. I mean, Houston is seeing 100,000 people vote a day. So in that world, uh, it's awful hard to like have your folks turn out at just so, I mean, his folks are going to have to run faster just to stay even with the higher turnout that's happening elsewhere. And, and the idea that you're going to leapfrog beyond that, you know, I'll see you and raise you X turnout. It's just a hard, just a hard math, but that is the one path that exists. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think it's interesting, you know, one, one of the ways you can tell where, you know, the candidates priorities, the two best ways is where they travel to and where they spend their money. And, you know, right now, you know, Trump, um, Asma knows this better than I do, but I, Trump was in Florida a few days ago. He was in Iowa on Wednesday. And uh, I think if you're the Trump campaign, if you were to ask the Trump campaign six months ago, two weeks before the election, would they want to be in campaigning in Iowa? Would they want to be even campaigning in Florida? Um, probably not. Um, you know, Florida was one of those states, I think six months ago, Democrats were really worried about not completely writing it off, but that's why they were making a lot of investments and focusing on Arizona because Joe Biden doesn't need Florida to win the presidency. Trump needs Florida. He loses Florida. It's all over with, right? The three, and then there are three, there are four other states you've got to watch. You've got to watch, obviously, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and then, um, and then Arizona. Because if, uh, if Biden loses Wisconsin, he can still win the presidency with Arizona. I think Osmus right. Michigan looks like um, it is moving, you know, it is moving solidly in, in Biden's direction. Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, I think, are two states to keep an eye on. They're still, I think, with Biden, but uh, not, to, not in the numbers, I think, would make me feel uh, a very a strong sense of security. The point that both Ron and Asma made about the enthusiasm of voters is spot on. They're, 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 the, the enthusiasm among black voters, among um, Democrats, um, you know, among millennials is higher than we've seen in a long time. And even in states, you know, in like a South Carolina where the presidential campaign isn't, um, you know, isn't really competitive, but the Senate race is uh, super competitive. You're seeing enthusiasm levels that are higher than they've seen in a long time. So that helps Biden. It helps Trump too. I think Trump's biggest, you know, I think what they're banking on is, and they point to this, that you know, they'll point to the registration of new voters in Florida. They'll look at the, they'll talk about the, the it, you know, that they've registered new voters in Pennsylvania. That's all fine. Registration for Democrats, actually, it's, I mean, we can, you can always register more voters. For us, it's always, we need to turn our voters out who are registered. And if we do that, then Biden will win. And that's why I think you're seeing a lot of investment by the Biden campaign and third parties and turning out black voters in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, um, in Florida, North Carolina. The investment we didn't see to the same extent uh, in 16. And I think that the, the problems that Hillary Clinton had in 16 don't exist with Joe Biden. There are people, a lot of people are going to vote against Joe Biden, obviously, half the, you know, less than half. But, but no one, he doesn't have the same um, visceral reaction that people had about um, uh, Clinton did. For whatever reason, I think it was bogus, but th that is, and, and I think particularly among black voters, you know, they were the reason why he became the Democratic nominee. There's an affinity there. I think he's doing a lot of good work so far in terms of mobilizing them. Uh, I think it's really the Hispanic vote in, in Arizona and Florida that we need to keep an eye out for Biden. 
if he can solidify that uh, constituency, um, I think he's going to walk away with it in Arizona and have a really good shot of, of winning it in Florida. You know, one thing I should add I'm really fascinated by is our uh, recent NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll came out, and it showed that Joe Biden is, uh, at this point in time, because they're theoretically winning white voters, which is fascinating to me because no Democrat running for president, you know, really you could argue since modern exit polls has really won the, the white vote. And, you know, I don't know if that will actually turn out to be true on election day, but if we look at how large of a margin President Trump had with white voters, what was 20 points? I mean, this is, it's to me why states like Ohio and Iowa are competitive. You could argue it's maybe even why Florida is as competitive as it is. And it's, to me, I think one of the great undercovered stories of this election cycle is just sort of this shift that we are seeing amongst white voters who are backing Joe Biden in numbers we have not seen for any Democrat recently. You just hit on the question I want to ask, and I'll start with Ron, about demographic and regional shifts from 2016 that are likely to shape the outcome in 2020. Yeah, right. Because I think there are some significant ones. Yes. And let's stay on that. I mean, you know, the, 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 the reason why the Marist NPR poll had Biden ahead among white voters was that it, it gave him a better performance than almost any of the other national polls have done among the non-college white voters. Uh, th there's pretty much convergence in the national polling that Biden is somewhere in the 57, 58, 60% range among college educated white voters. That's unprecedented. No Democrat has gotten up that high. If you think about uh, the, you know, it's hard, it's always hard, uh, Bob, to, you know, compare this to the last time because there are like six different baselines that people use to measure the last time, and they all give you a different starting point. You know, whether we're talking about the exit poll, the Pew validated voters, the CCES, the ANES, or Catalyst, or for that matter, States of Change, which may be my favorite of all, they're all slightly different. So it's hard to exactly measure, but there, there, there certainly is no, there, there certainly is no data source that would put Biden, would put Hillary Clinton at around 60% of college whites, maybe 58, 57 is, a, is an ending point. And as I was going to say, that uh, the movement relative to 16 or 18 among college white women may not be that much uh, further in 2020, because they're already, Trump has already driven them away to the point where Democrats are winning 60% plus of them. So that might get a little better. But what's really getting vastly better is college white men. I mean, you know, uh, if you look at, the, the, for example, the 2010-2014 uh, Republican sweeps, uh, in the exit polls, Democrats won one-third of college white men. I don't think any Democratic presidential nominee in the exit poll era has ever won college white men. And yet, consistently, including in the NPR Marist poll yesterday, Biden is north of 55 among college white men. We've never seen that. Now, the non-college whites, you know, are, are, are still a tougher nut to crack. For Democrats. And there is a regional variation, as I think you were, you were getting at. Um, there's no question that Biden is regaining some ground among blue-collar whites, particularly women, in the, in the Rust Belt states. Uh, in whatever data source you want to use, again, you got like half a dozen to choose from, but in the main data sources, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton fell to about one-third of the vote, uh, consistently 35% maybe, among non-college whites in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, Iowa. And that was fatal. Uh, you know, Democrats have been losing them for years, but they, they had been uh, polling with Obama, certainly somewhere around 40 to 45 percent among those non-college whites. And it really matters in those states uh, because they are still half the electorate or more in all of those states, those five states, you know, roughly half the voters or more are non-college whites. So 
what's happening now? Well, Biden isn't blowing the doors off with them, but he's back to around 40% in, in public polling, sometimes just under uh, and sometimes just over, just under probably in Ohio, over in Michigan and Wisconsin, somewhere between 38 and 44%. And if you combine that with the uh, enormous uh, margins that he's now posting among the college whites, that's how you get to the point where you're ahead in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. In the, in the Sun Belt, it's a different story. I mean, kind of the, the tension in the modern electoral map is that the demographic trends are more favorable for Democrats in the Sun Belt, but they still can get a lot more whites to vote for them in the Rust Belt. I mean, that's kind of why both of them stay close. And just to, to finish up here, in, in the Rust Belt, in the public polling, Trump is consistent, I'm sorry, in, in the Sun Belt, Trump in the public polling is still winning two thirds to three quarters of non-college whites. I mean, the, the kind of the law and order, black mobs are coming to kill you, uh, has a lot of residents uh, in, in those, you know, whether, whether we're talking about Georgia or Texas or Florida, uh, he's running, you know, I would say 10 to 15 points better among non-college whites, maybe 20 than he is in the Rust Belt states. And, but there he's facing the reality that that electorate is growing much more diverse every four years. So that, that's the regional divide that we see. Overall, um, as kind of a concluding point, you know, he's still winning, even except for that Maris poll. In most polls, he's still winning about 60% of non-college whites. You would say that is a pretty good performance. I mean, the problem is he's alienated everyone else to an extent that he has to win like 65, 66% of them. He has to set a record every four, every four years. And, and as I've, I've said, that's sort of like making a plan to hit 406 every season. Like you're not always going to be able to do it. Uh, and that is the, that is the demographic cul-de-sac to which he, into which he has led the Republican party where they need such enormous numbers among their base because they have so alienated pretty much all the, all the segments of the electorate that are growing. Doug, has demography uh, been transformed politically now? So there, there are a couple different groups and, that I'm looking at. Uh, first of all, the Democrats were able to, um, really make significant inroads with uh, suburban women in 18 there. And, and I think that, and that remains to, to be the case. Nothing has happened over the course of the last two years that has uh, damaged that support with uh, suburban women. And that's obviously going to help. Uh, I believe that'll help Biden outside of Philadelphia. That'll help him uh, outside of Tampa. That'll help him uh, outside of uh, Detroit. The other interesting change, though, that I think we're seeing, and this is really going to, I think, impact potentially in Florida, but in other states, is just how well Biden is doing with seniors. You know, and I believe Hillary Clinton lost seniors in Florida by, you know, 17 points. Seniors used to be a community that were solidly behind Democrats. We lost them. Uh, and now it looks like Biden has really regained that support and is fighting at least to a draw, maybe doing significantly better than that in certain states. And I think a lot of that is attributed to what's going on with the coronavirus and the, the perception by folks over 60 that the president has been so cavalier with uh, handling the, the, the virus. And, and I think actually the fact that, you know, uh, in the last, uh, you know, in the last two weeks, there were these scenes of him going, you know, sort of, you know, going out in his, uh, with his secret service outside of Walter Reed, doing these events on the steps of the White House lawn when older folks in this country have been told by the CDC and medical experts, 
hey, take care of yourself. Don't take unnecessary risks. Take, you know, stay inside if you've been exposed to someone, if you're sick. And they're watching the president do all this stuff. And I got to think that that is blowing, you know, that has blowback. And I think the senior vote, you know, if, 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 if Biden can maintain this lead, it's going to really make things. We saw a lot of scenes um, in the villages, which is, a, you know, which has been a hotbed of Republican support in Florida for a long time. We've seen a lot of imagery of uh, Democrats out there, you know, in golf carts. Uh, with Biden signs, which is something that you rarely have seen in the past. And so I think that is, and Biden now is really leaning into that. He's, he's you know, he's directing a lot of advertising towards uh, winning uh, seniors. So, uh, and then the final group is, is uh, I go back to it, is black voters. And look, I, you know, Hillary Clinton won them overwhelmingly. It's just that she didn't turn enough of them out in the states that, you know, she needed to win. And so I think what you're seeing at a, a, you know, particularly at a, you know, a motivational level is that now, you know, black voters are right up there with white voters in terms of enthusiasm, white voters who are supporting Trump on enthusiasm levels. And that's a very positive sign for, for Joe Biden and other Democrats running uh, down ballot. Yeah, as we, you know, today Trump is campaigning with seniors in Florida, and then he's going on to Georgia, a state I can't imagine that he thought he was going to be campaigning in you know, two weeks out from the, or two and a half weeks out from the election. But we heard this phrase, which I've used, and I think a lot of people have used from uh, Ron, about a demographic cul-de-sac. Do you think that's what's happened to Trump in this election? I think that's a great description, actually. I really like that description, right? That he has so sort of cornered the party into this small, very, right? The sort of neighborhood cul-de-sac where there's no way to get in or out unless you go through that one little route. The one thing, though, that I've been fascinated with is, you know, Joe Biden seems to have strung together this very diverse coalition. And it's a coalition that is largely united by one factor, which is to defeat President Trump. And so, you know, are these long-term demographic realignments? I am extremely skeptical that some of them are. I think, you know, Doug, you were speaking, or maybe Ron earlier, both, to, both of you to suburban women. I think that is a fundamental shift. And I say that in part because... You know, I was out there in 2018 talking to people. I went back to the same communities outside of Detroit to talk to people. These are, you know, sort of affluent communities in Oakland County, which is uh, northwest of Detroit. And people are even more solidified in their Democrat. I mean, they, they may have left originally because of Donald Trump, but they are now more solidified as Democrats. Where I think I'm skeptical of a real realignment is around folks who, you know, for example, some of the young black and brown voters I talked to. Um, this was both in Dearborn recently, which is heavily Arab community. These are people who are skeptical of Joe Biden as the nominee, as well as young black voters who said to me, you know, I'm voting for Joe Biden because I want to defeat President Trump, but I don't know that I will do this again in four years. I mean, that is candidly what I'm hearing. And, and I wonder the same about seniors. I mean, it's such a diverse coalition that it is a coalition that seems like it is very plausible for Joe Biden to win. The question I think remains, well, what, what does he do about governing? I mean, that to me is the fascinating question is just how do you govern such a diverse coalition that really has, you know, not a whole lot of agreement about perhaps what policies matter most to them. We'll have you back next semester to talk about that. <laughs> hey, hey, Bob, can, can, can I just have one dimension of this? Because we've been talking about the, yeah. the demographic uh, kind of, you know, reconfiguration. The geographic implications of that are also very profound. I mean, we are seeing a widening trench between uh, metro and non-metro America. Uh, and it is almost as if now 
you could draw a beltway around every major metro center. And within that beltway, it is predominantly blue. Uh, and outside that beltway, it is increasingly red. And the challenge for Republicans is that the beltway is kind of moving out three to five miles from the city center every two years to get to a place where they have to win. And, and I think that, you know, it's, it may not be decisive in the result. I mean, the key thing in the result is going to be Biden's ability to win back at least a few blue collar whites in the, in the Rust Belt above all. But I think the most lasting uh, kind of marker of this election, because I do think the senior thing is temporary and, uh, you know, the blue collar whites are going to be a real problem for Democrats going forward. The most lasting thing in this election is that the Democratic dominance of the big metro centers that began in the 90s in California, Illinois, and New Jersey, that extended in the aughts to Colorado and Virginia, is now really making landfall in the Sun Belt. And that we are seeing metro Atlanta, metro Houston, metro Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, even Phoenix and Las Vegas starting to move in the same direction that, you know, first Santa Clara, and Chicago and, and northern New Jersey and then northern Virginia and Denver did. You know, it is entirely possible that even in Texas, Biden will come out of the major metro centers with a vote lead of around a million votes. And Trump may be able to withstand that by just turning out enough rural people. But given that 70% of the jobs and three quarters of the economic output in Texas are coming from those four metros, you can see the writing on the wall. Uh, no Democrat has won Maricopa, which is Phoenix, since Truman in 48. Okay, it, is, it, it was the biggest county in America that Trump won. And it is highly likely that Biden is going to win it. So if, in fact, you begin to see the metros in the Sun Belt start to behave like Northern Virginia, like Denver, Arapahoe, uh, you know, uh, Jefferson, uh, Adams, if that happens and it lasts, which Osma said is a, is a very good question, can Democrats maintain them? Uh, in power, if that happens, Trumpism is in is uh, you know in, implausible as a long term strategy for the Republicans. Because you can't, you, there are not enough rural voters if you're starting to lose the Texas metros by a million votes every four years. So l- let me ask a related question, and that is the decline, apparent decline, in people who are going to vote for third party candidates this time, compared with 2016. Why are we seeing that decline? And where are those voters going? Are they going to Biden or Trump? So I think it looks like it's they're primarily going to Biden. Um, you know, in, in 16, you had um, you had votes going to Jill Stein that were um, look, there were two candidates in 16 that voters didn't like. Um, and uh, Jill Stein ended up being a place for the, the Hillary Clinton folks to go who just couldn't vote for her, couldn't vote for Trump. And then you had. Um, Gary, Gary Johnson, right? Yeah, Gary Johnson. Right. And, 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 um, and, and I think that now, I think what you're seeing is there are Republicans and independent-leaning Republicans who can't vote for Trump, and, and Biden's okay. Um, he's, you know, he is okay. He's not going to be, these are folks that, you know, aren't going to be lifelong Democrats. It's sort of the Lincoln project Republicans. These are folks are going to eventually at some point, maybe in the third year of the Biden administration, will eventually matriculate back into the, you know, be hard, you know, be Republicans again. But they have a they have a suitable alternative. And there was a lot of energy, you know, on the, you know, in the in the grassroots, on social behind Jill Stein. 
And now you're not seeing it. I mean, some polls aren't even registering third-party votes, uh, which is, you know, look, it's really good for, I mean, that's really good for Biden. You know, I think, you know, two months ago, we were obviously, some Democrats were worried about Kanye West and potentially that being, a, you know, an issue and sort of flamed out there. But I think ultimately it comes down to like, Biden's a good guy and he's okay. And maybe they disagree with him on taxes and, and some in some fight in some issues, but he's good enough to vote uh, to 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 support against someone that they despise. Osma, you have anything else on this? I would agree. I do think a lot of the votes are going towards Joe Biden, and in part, I would argue that you hear from a, a lot of folks who specifically supported, say, Jill Stein on the left in 2016, that there was anger. There was a lot of you know. I guess it was a mixture of anger and apathy. Uh, perhaps because they supported Bernie Sanders during the primaries. And, and this cycle, whatever anger and apathy they have is not directed at the Democratic nominee, as it was maybe in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. It's directed squarely at, at President Trump. And in part, I would argue that is because they've seen him govern now for a few years. And you know, these are the folks that I've been talking to. These are, these are young people. They are often progressive. How the president has specifically dealt with issues of race and immigration matters a lot to them. And so while they may not like Joe Biden, you know, one guy interviewed recently had this great story. He said, you know, we now realize progress isn't about taking 10, stop, 10 steps forward. Progress is ensuring that you don't slide 20 steps backwards. And he feels like that's where a lot of folks are right now. I, I think the polling is pretty clear that Biden is winning by about 15 to 20 points among third party voters in 2016. But obviously there's, a, there's another dimension. I mean, there's people who are coming into the electorate who didn't vote in 2016. And as Doug mentioned, I mean, you know, Trump is having some success, uh, as you would expect, given the kind of the, 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 you know, the deep, the narrow but deep strategy that he's pursued. He is having success at increasing turnout among uh, at registration among non-college whites and so forth. But if you look at who is aging into the electorate, uh, you know, who are the new voters since 2016 who have turned 18? Uh, you know, not all of them are going to vote, obviously. But in Arizona, 60% of them are, 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 are young people of color. In Nevada, it's 70%. In Texas, it's 65%. In Georgia, it's 55%. In North Carolina, it's, I think, 55%. So, the, you know, the electorate, as I was saying before, to some extent, Trump, given how narrow coalition he has pursued, essentially revolving around non-college, non-urban, and Christian whites, especially evangelicals, He's got to run really fast just to stay in place because as a share of eligible voters, non-college whites are going to be at least two points smaller and probably three points smaller than they were in 2016. And it could be even uh, more than that in some of these Sunbelt states. So again, just to stay in place, he's got to really turn out a lot of people, much less uh, if he wants to shift the balance further in his direction I mean, that's like, I'll see you and I'll raise you. It's, it's, it's a lot to ask for, given that the underlying demography continues to evolve away from you. I want to turn this over to questions, but first, I have one last one. Maybe we can get a quick response from each of you. Normally, you think that if someone goes somewhere and they campaign, it helps them. Are Trump's rallies helping him? The reason I ask that is because Osma talked about the alienation of people who've watched how he's governed, and I think the rallies are an expression of the way in which he governs. So... Do they help him? I think the message, I think the, the way, the medium overwhelms the message that the, the fact that he's holding rallies without masks or social distancing, even in states where he's been specifically asked 
not to do it by local public health officials just overwhelms everything he says from the stage. And that, uh, and that the, the share of the country that thinks that all of this is kind of, you know, some version of hysteria or a hoax thrills to that. But that's what, a third of the country, 35%? Uh, and, and I think the rallies just dig him in deeper on the core problem that Doug was mentioning earlier, that 60% of the country disapproves of the way he's handled the coronavirus outbreak. And that is just the uh, inescapable anchor on his overall vote. Uh, Osman and Doug, do you agree with that? It certainly helps his case with his base, but his base isn't the issue for him. I mean, he, he has always had the loyalty of his base. We saw that in 2018 as well, that a majority of, of folks who did support President Trump were planning to black Republican House members, and that wasn't a successful strategy writ large. So, you know, at this point, he needs to be thinking about how you expand beyond the base and, and do the rallies do that? I, I am... I am skeptical that they are able to do that. So is it helping Trump? It's, is it helping Trump's ego? Yes. Is it helping Trump's campaign? No. So I think Trump does, a, you know, Trump makes a lot of decisions that probably help him personally feel better about himself and help his ego. But the long term damage to his campaign uh, is, uh, is going to be hard for him to overcome. So I just think that these images of him at these rallies when this country is in the middle of a pandemic, we're seeing cases rise. Um, you know, there's, you know, some states are starting to have to shut down a little bit more. Um, not to mention the visuals of people packed into airport hangars without masks. I don't think that helps him. His campaign. Does it help his ego? I think it helps his ego. And that's always been the problem. That's his, that has always been his sort of uh, underlying issue. It's that you know, he, he does these things that help his ego, but hurt his campaign. And that's how he's really conducted himself for the last three years. I think if he had, you know, maybe took a little bit different approach, maybe he'd be in a different position right now. But for him, it's always been about himself and his ego. And I think that's what the rallies are all about right now. Okay, let's turn this over to questions. And Erica Maldonado from the center is going to ask the question. She's got them in front of her. Erica? So we have a few questions about President Trump's town hall yesterday. So I'll start there. First question is from an anonymous attendee in there. So their question is, they say, President Trump said last night that voter fraud is not just a few hundred votes here and there, but tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of disappeared, manipulated, or otherwise fraudulent votes that disadvantage him. With record absentee ballots being cast, does he have a point about the increased potential and reality of voter fraud? No. There's no evidence of, look, it, 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 I think if you look at reputable uh, organizations like the Brennan Center, they've looked at this, many other organizations have, there's very, um, there's very little evidence that voter fraud is a, a problem. You're more likely to be struck by lightning. And look, I mean, if he has a problem by voting by mail, then maybe he shouldn't be voting by mail or his entire family who votes by mail. So it's not an issue. I think there's actually been instances, you can look in North Carolina, where the, you know, the issues of sort of uh, voter malfeasance has been more prevalent on the right than on the left. So I, it's not, it, it's a red herring. People should have confidence in the voting system not sure what else there is to say about yeah, it. I mean, I think the bigger issue, some of my colleagues who covered voting looked at the primaries and the increase that we saw during the primaries in, in folks who were voting by mail. And what they saw is, you know, folks are, are sometimes disqualified because they don't follow the rules. They don't sign their name where they should. They don't maybe put the uh, ballot inside the proper envelope. I mean, to me, what's more interesting is, you know, you're sort of more likely to have your ballot disqualified because you don't actually read the instructions and follow the rules per se than, 
uh, have it be an instance of legitimate voter fraud because we just aren't seeing a lot of voter fraud. Yeah, Trump's own commission that he formed to find voter fraud couldn't. You know, they had a, they had, they've had filings court in Pennsylvania where they have been unable to cite a single example of in-person voter fraud. And it is true. I think Democrats may have underestimated the difficulty of uh, getting millions of people, tens of millions of people who never voted by mail through the process without some glitch along the way. And that is, that is a genuine issue. On the other hand, Trump is now basically relying entirely on turnout on election day at a point when the caseload is exploding again. I and mean, we are heading toward a third surge. So, I mean, it is possible that there will be voters in, you know, a state like Wisconsin uh, that, uh, you know, may wake up the last weekend if polls still have Biden seven points up uh, in or eight points up and the caseload in the state is surging. Are all of Trump voters going to feel comfortable coming out in those circumstances as opposed to the Democratic vote, which has been kind of more spaced out over the entire month of October? I think it's just a real risk that he has backloaded his vote so heavily, precisely as I think the virus is going to be back at the front of the news every night uh, because the caseloads and the hospitalization is growing so much. Next question. No matter what your political bent, what was your impression of Savannah's conduct as a moderator? This question is from Neil Maslin. And uh, he, his thoughts is she acted more like a debate opponent rather than a moderator. But curious to hear your thoughts. Well, she wasn't really a moderator. She's a journalist. Um, and I think that um, journalists are supposed to be, they're not there to help candidates. They're there to ask tough questions and push candidates. And uh, we certainly saw that with Wolf Blitzer and Nancy Pelosi earlier this week. You know, I think she conducted herself fine, you know, she, because there was no other candidate. She wasn't you know, I, I, she was serving as a, as a, you know, she was asking tough questions of the president. Questions, to be honest, that he hasn't really had to face because he hasn't been doing tough interviews. He's basically just been going on Fox and Hannity and Rush Limbaugh, and he hasn't had to answer some of these questions. But, you know, yeah, she'll, he'll get thrown at him at scrums going into the helicopter. But for the most part, he hasn't really had a lot of tough interviews since, uh, you know, Chris Wallace earlier in the year and, and, and Jonathan Swan. So I thought she conducted herself fine. I thought it was a good interview. Uh, and that's what it was. It was an interview. Anyone else on that? I, yeah, I thought she was fine too. I thought she elicited a lot of information from him that other people have not been able to about the size of his debt, his taxes, you know, obviously face the usual Trump evasions. I just thought what was interesting was more from the other side of the, of the table. I mean, Trump trying to, trying to face an interviewer and communicate with an audience outside of the Fox bubble he reminded me either of somebody coming out into the bright sunshine after being in a movie theater all day, uh, you know, kind of blinking, like what, what's what what's happening out here or someone in a foreign country who tries to make themselves understood just by talking louder. I mean, it was like he just looked completely out of sorts when you kind of throw out these, you know, strange foxy and things and people don't just, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, sure. Retweet that, you know, Obama had SEAL Team 6 killed because they didn't really kill bin Laden. And it was just, a, again, it was kind of a, a reminder of how much of a bubble his entire presidency has kind of unfolded within. And when he, when he has to get out and talk to a larger America, he just seems a little uh, lost. Anyone else, Asma, or should we go on to the next question? Go ahead, yeah, because I was with uh, Joe Biden in Philly, so I really, to the blunt, just didn't see um, the entire Trump uh, town hall. This question's from Gary Freeman. So he's asking, has Biden overcome the sleepy Joe image in the minds of voters 
who were initially influenced by Trump's description of him? Oh, I have such interesting thoughts on this. <laughs> I was actually interviewing a Republican analyst a couple months ago, and he felt like Sleepy Joe was actually the complete like misnomer. He felt like it was not doing the job that the Trump campaign intended to, which is what his other nicknames kind of get stuck in people's mind and they connote this derogatory image. And he said, right now, President Trump has been so chaotic and so sort of unstable in people's opinion. You know, people want stability. And so Sleepy, in his view, you know, uh, denotes calm, steadiness, mm. sort of this father figure grandpa. He's like, that's what people want. They want no drama. And so I would actually argue it is a nickname that some people, you know, you still hear it here and there. But I think the problem with the nickname was that it wasn't really, um, it wasn't like little Marco, you know, it just never stuck in a very negative way for people. People sort of want no drama right now after a couple of years of the Trump presidency. Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest tactical or strategic mistakes that the Trump campaign made was heading into the uh, convention, the Democratic convention leading up to it those few weeks, you know, where they were trying to define Biden as this, you know, sort of this bumbling guy who was out of it. And then Biden gave what was probably the speech of his life. I think, he, you know, he was direct, he was forceful, he was energetic. And it really sort of tore down that entire um, image that Republicans and Trump people were trying to create about Biden. And since then, you know, I, I think that he's been, you know, at every sort of moment deliver he has, he's put in a good debate performance. And I think you're right about, you know, asthma. I think, look, people want no drama right now. They don't want, they want a sense of normalcy. If that's a little less, uh, if that's sort of turning the volume down a little bit, making it a little quieter, I think people, even Republicans that I look at in focus groups in counties outside of Detroit, and they're just so sick of the tweeting. And they're so sick of the, the sort of chaos. And they may even still vote for Trump, but that is one of those things that they just can't get over. And they just want a sense of normalcy. And Biden gives that to them. Uh, if Ron's not going to weigh in on this, let's go to the next question. Question from Sean Daniel. He's asking, do you think that AG Barr is still ready to act on ways to overturn the results and send decisions to the Supreme Court? Uh, I will say yes, but it's not clear that it will be close enough to make that plausible. I mean, I think that if there's any opportunity to try to overturn the, the result, that uh, Barr will pursue it, that Trump will pursue it, that Republican state legislatures will do all sorts of things. Uh, and I think that most Republicans in Congress will find a way to avoid condemning it, if not openly embrace it. I mean, it is astonishing how far down the road the party has gone toward basically in any means necessary uh, a viewpoint at this point. You know, this idea that we represent the real majority, like our voters are America, and, and the Democratic coalition is inherently illegitimate because it doesn't reflect what Sarah Palin called the real America. Therefore, you know, anything goes, uh, as we see with, you know, the Barrett nomination. So yeah, I think Barr will, will push this as far as he can. I think if you lose Pennsylvania by seven points, that's like 350,000 votes. Uh, so I'm not sure if there are, you know, 350,000 votes you can, you can find to, to, to light on fire. One thing to keep in mind is that, uh, you know, in every one of the six swing states, except for Florida, the six big swing states, uh, there is a Democrat somewhere in the, in the electoral chain of command, either a secretary of state or governor or both. Uh, and I'm thinking of North Carolina, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And so 
uh, there, you know, there, there could be battles with state Supreme Courts, but having, having those governors who were elected in 2018 in those three states really does, I think, give Democrats a lot more calm about how this might unfold than otherwise. Next question. How do you think voter suppression efforts might play a role in the outcome of the election? This is a question from Megan Hamilton. Well, look, I think, it, you know, I think that these are tactics that occur every cycle. And I think now with uh, that, you know, with social media playing such a huge role in terms of where people get information, uh, and we saw a lot of efforts and certainly saw efforts in, you know, uh, in 2016 to target black voters with misinformation. Uh, we're seeing that now. You know, I, I, you saw the report that black voters were targets of the Trump campaign to, um be uh, folks that, uh, you know, sort of deterrence, I think they use the term to deter them from voting. So I think, look, I think that it's sort of, I, I believe it's, it's sort of a critical part of how Republicans run their campaigns. They never will say it, but trying to suppress the vote, whether it's brown or black voters or young voters, th there's a reason why they, they put in place a number of these policies in different states. They want to make it harder to, for, for people to vote because they know that most if they make it harder for black and brown voters to turn out, then that's going to help them. But I would say that Democrats have had a lot of victories recently. Uh, Mark Elias is a lawyer that uh, I think I'm sure Ron knows extremely well. Like he's, you're, you know, he's, uh, you know, and he's leading a lot of the efforts to make sure to combat a lot of these, these state policies. And, and I think there's a big effort by the party to make sure that on election day and leading up, there's a huge voter protection effort organizations like the NAACP are involved. So everyone on the, the left is really sort of doing what they can to combat it, but it, it'll be there. It, it, it has been for years um, and uh, got to call it out when we see it. You know, in broad strokes, turnout among non-college whites usually runs about the same as among African-Americans. It's not really much higher or lower. It's about the same. Turnout among college whites is 20 points higher than both. And so you know, Republicans, you know, have made all of this more difficult uh, at a time when the group that votes the most reliably is moving away from them. I, you know, I got to think that some of the things they do, uh, obviously aimed, as I said, with surgical precision at black and brown voters, uh, as they said, in North Carolina also contributes to the, I mean, they are now dependent on a group of voters that, you know, don't have great turnout historically. Uh, and uh, 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 so, you know, as, as they make these systems more difficult, and hoping to ensnare, uh, you know, voters of color, uh, they're probably tripping up more of their own voters than they used as, as you've had this class inversion and this class realignment uh, in the electorate. Uh, I think we have time for at least one more question. Do you think Trump and Biden will agree to do another debate? It's from Kathleen Beck. Seems like it. We got topics for the next debate. Well, those came out today. You know, Joe Biden's campaign says that he intends to move forward on the debate, assuming that, you know, the scientific experts that he advises with say it's okay. Uh, he would like that Donald Trump show evidence of having a negative COVID test. And I thought what was interesting from the town hall that Trump had yesterday was his sort of vague recollection of when that COVID test took place prior to the debate. And I say like, on a personal level, I covered that debate. You know, I had to have a COVID test just to be in the media filing room that was administered by the Cleveland Clinic. So, you know, it, it was, to my understanding, those were the rules of anyone who attended that debate. And so the fact that the president, you know, was not able to provide that clarity does make me wonder if he can't do that ahead of next week's debate. That could throw, I think, the debate into a little 
question. Asma, I mean, I, I'm interested in your thought on this. I think the Cleveland Clinic is getting off kind of easy here because they have not publicly disclosed, and I know because I've asked them, what the president and Biden were required to attest to them. I mean, they have not said you had to, I, I was told by one source that the candidates had to say that they were tested within 72 hours of the day. Cleveland Clinic hasn't said that. They haven't said anything. They haven't said, you know, some people thought Chris Wallace left the impression that, that Trump had to be tested that day. My understanding is that is not the requirement. But we don't know exactly what it is because the Cleveland Clinic and the commission still haven't told us exactly what the requirement is. And I would think that if, you know, if I was the Biden campaign, I would like it publicly out there. Okay, you have to be tested within 48 hours or you have to be tested on site because the Cleveland, the Cleveland Clinic is not exactly being a paragon of transparency in the way they are handling this question about why is the question only to Trump when he was tested? They theoretically have an answer. He had to say something to them in order to get on the stage. And unless I'm wrong, they have not told us what that something is. No, I, I mean, I think that's a really valid point. And in part, because I think those of us who covered the debate were under the understanding that anybody who was in the vicinity, um, in order to enter the facility, those of us who are journalists had to be tested. Um, so I guess we were under the assumption that those were the same rules for the candidates and, and their families and, and friends. No, I was told explicitly by a very good source that they did not have to be tested on site. That is a misconception. And that this source said they had to affirm that they were tested within 72 hours prior to the debate. But again, why are we like relying on anonymous? Why isn't the Cleveland Clinic just tell us what they had to tell them? Hey, I think Biden is now going to say that he has to be tested, Trump does, by an independent uh, facility, independent experts on the very day of the debate. Yeah. Or he's not going to show up. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or he should say it. Yeah. So what's the over-under on whether there's a debate or not? I mean, how likely do you think it is that President Trump will abide by that stipulation you've just outlined? <laughs> I mean, probably not. I, I think he needs the debate so badly that he probably will abide by it. But I also believe that like his rallies, he's probably not going to change his stripes in the debate. And the debate very, very well may not help him. It may hurt him. I mean, our, our USC Dornsife poll, we did a discreet one that straddled the debates and straddled the last debate. And the answers from before the debate and after the debate showed real gains for Biden and real harm for Trump. So I think there'll probably be another debate, but I don't know that it will help Trump. And, you know, that, that, that poll kind of underscores what we're talking about before. Like, that's the Trump. He, he was being Trump that he's on Fox. He was being Fox Trump. And all of a sudden he was Fox Trump in front, front of the whole country. And it was like a whole different audience that he's ever exposed himself to for the most part. Yeah. Okay, I think we'll wind this down. I, I want to thank Ozma and Doug and Ron for standing, spending yeah. the whole hour standing up. I'm not going to tell you to stand by. Yeah. Uh, stand down, yeah. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be back with Election R&D next week, Friday at noon, uh, with our special guest, Patrick Griffin, who's a former fellow at the Center for the Political Future and a really smart Republican Paul from New Hampshire. So thanks everybody and see you next week. Great to be with you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 